Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. This will be our Old Testament reading. Frequently in the book of Acts, we've noticed various ways that um, things that happen to the apostles or things the apostles do echo uh, some of the experiences or actions of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, And we've seen this particularly with Elijah and Elisha. Well, uh, and not so long ago, remember with the um, raising of Eutychus from the dead? Um, Today, we're going to consider... um, this passage, which resembles the, the series of meetings where the disciples in Acts are having to say goodbye quite reluctantly to the Apostle Paul. Second Kings 2, verses 1 through 14. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed... Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Amen. Let's turn to Acts 21. We'll read verses 1 through 16. 
And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mnason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Amen. You may be seated. On May the 13th, 1940, Winston Churchill gave his very first speech to the House of Commons after becoming Prime Minister. This was still in those very early days of World War II, just a few weeks before uh, Dunkirk, even, when the outlook was not very bright for Britain at all. And at that crucial and dark moment, uh, Churchill was trying to unite a kind of divided parliament around the leadership of his newly forming government. Listen uh, to what he had to say to them. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. And then a little later on, he says, what, and what is our aim? It is victory, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. 
blood, toil, tears, and sweat. That's not your typical uh, feel-good political speech. Churchill was calling Great Britain, quite candidly, to a path of suffering as a nation, as a people, which he had hoped, though, uh, would result at last in victory. This was not a speech of despair. It was a speech of hope, but a very realistic hope. Uh, as he said, however long and hard the road might be. And so in that moment, in those words, I think there is a fitting um, metaphor, an analogy for the, for the Christian life, for the calling of the church uh, in between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Uh, Jesus himself said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He has offered to uh, Christians in this life blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But with victory at the end. And that is uh, the pattern of his own life. It's also the pattern of his servants in the book of Acts, particularly of the life of Paul. And we're going to see that um, particularly in this uh, passage today. So let's consider it in three parts this morning. First is going to be a daunting destination, verses 1 through 6. Second is going to be a prophetic picture, verses 7 through 11. And then third, a simple submission, verses 12 to 16. So a daunting destination, a prophetic picture, and a simple submission. All right, so verses 1 through 3 trace for us Paul's uh, journey, his voyage by ship across the Mediterranean Sea, eastward, back in the direction of Israel. Um, Of course, he's been in Asia Minor on the Aegean coast near Ephesus after traveling around in Macedonia and Greece. Uh, But uh, now he's going back towards Jerusalem. Um, And we should notice that Luke in this section, again, is using the word we. Uh, This is another part of Paul's travels where Luke is an eyewitness, a traveling companion of Paul. And by verse 3, they've come together as far as Tyre. Now, Tyre is just a little bit to the north of Israel. Uh, They are quite close now. And as Paul gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, uh, it seems like these prophetic warnings he's been getting about the suffering that he's going to face there start to pick up uh, greater and greater intensity. Verse 4 may seem a little bit difficult when you first read it. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And if you just took that verse all by itself out of context, it might sound like the Holy Spirit through these prophecies is giving Paul a direct command uh, not to keep going towards Jerusalem. Um, But we read this verse in context. We compare it with the surrounding uh, passages when we should realize we need to make a distinction, a distinction here between the revelation that the Holy Spirit is giving to the church and some of the conclusions that these Christians are drawing incorrectly as they take that revelation and they try to tell Paul, therefore, what they think he should do in light of it. Um, so back in chapter 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I am going to Jerusalem, why? Constrained by the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who is constraining Paul to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Before that, in chapter 19, verse 21, Luke says, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So it's the Holy Spirit 
who is directing Paul on this journey to Jerusalem. We should not get the idea that he's somehow ignoring the Holy Spirit's commands. That he's, he's going anyway when he's been commanded not to go. But he has not been commanded not to go. He has simply been told what's going to happen when he gets there. He's been told in every city, uh, he said to the Ephesian elders last time, in every city I've been told that, that, affliction, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So you see, Paul is holding these two things together. One is, if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested. Things are going to get really hard. And on the other hand, I have to go to Jerusalem. See, one of those does not exclude the other. Uh, the church is having trouble seeing that, but for Paul, it's clear both of these th- those things are simply true, and I have to hold them together. Um, to the rest of the church... They see this a little differently. When the Holy Spirit reveals something like, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. To them, that sounds very much like, don't go there. Um, They assume, Paul, if you know this path ends in you losing your freedom, just don't take it. Why would the Holy Spirit be revealing this to you if not to warn you away from going there? Um, And so when it says through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, I think we can make a distinction there between what the Holy Spirit is saying outright um, and what the church is inferring from that revelation. They're they're the one. The churches are the ones um, telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, giving him that counsel. And why is that? Well, it's simply because they're receiving the same message that the church has been getting everywhere else, that imprisonment and afflictions await him there. That's what Paul has been hearing ever since Miletus. It's the same message that's accompanied him all along the way. Do you see, the message, this is a path towards danger. It's not the same thing as a message that says, don't take that path. This road leads to suffering does not mean turn around and go a different way. Quite the contrary, in fact, When you understand Paul's whole conception of what the Christian life is all about, Paul realizes this is a path towards hardship and it is a path that I must take. It is a daunting destination, but it is my destination. This is where I'm supposed to be going. Um, Like many other things in nature, human nature also likes to seek out the path of least resistance. That's what comes naturally to us. Things that make us uncomfortable, things that are difficult, things that hurt. Uh, Generally, we like to avoid those things. We like to do what's comfortable, what's easy, what is painless. Um, And, of course, some of that is a good thing. It's how we navigate the world and use our scarce energy and resources to, to be able to actually survive. But of course, uh, part of maturity, part of growing up into adulthood involves learning to accept, a lot of the time, a little bit of short-term pain for a long-term gain, right? Delayed gratification, something that doesn't come naturally to children. We learn as we mature. Um, Sacrificing what I want right now for something that I want more in the future. The problem is there's a lot of purportedly Christian teaching out there 
that encourages really in the when it comes down to it, it's very childish. And I say that advisedly, like a child, um, not in not in the childlike simplicity or, or humility that we're supposed to have, but or dependence, but the childish in terms of immature um, commitment to getting happiness now, to avoiding discomfort now, to maximizing pleasure and prosperity and minimizing pain and loss now. Um, the, the message sometimes sounds as though if you, if you would just believe in Jesus, then from now on your troubles will be miles away, as we probably already heard way too many times uh, this month already. Um, so, but when you look at the New Testament, it seems like every page really is teaching Christians the exact opposite expectation from the Christian life in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says. But, of course, take heart, I have overcome the world. Think, if there's a choice before you, and, and you know, if I go this way, things are going to be really hard. I'm, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to have to make sacrifices. I'm going to be uncomfortable. You have to understand, that does not mean, therefore, I shouldn't do it. No, Paul hears these prophecies. He's got his eyes wide open. He's not ignoring them. He's not burying his head in the sand. He knows what's ahead of him. And he keeps on moving because he recognizes the path that Christ, by his Spirit, has called him to take is a path of suffering. Think about uh, your memories of 9-11. There were a lot of uh, inspiring stories that came out of that day of heroism and courage. Uh, One of the themes that many of us probably remember is when those World Trade Center towers were burning and the people inside were trying to evacuate, um, there were some people who were not rushing out of the buildings, they were rushing in, right? They were running towards the danger. And many of those people, of course, ended up giving their lives in that effort to save others. We don't think of those people as foolish or as wasting their lives. We think of them as heroic and courageous I think there's an analogy with the way we should be seeing what Paul is doing here. Paul keeps moving. These prophecies keep coming in, though. In Caesarea, uh, they're staying with Philip, uh, the same Philip who met the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. And um, while Paul is staying there at Philip's house, here comes Agabus, down from Judea, probably from Jerusalem itself. Um, And we've met Agabus before, uh, back in chapter 11. He was the one who foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. So he's a a well-known prophet. Uh, Everybody knows Agabus has this ability to um, receive prophecies through the Holy Spirit. And for him to to come here to Caesarea, especially to bring Paul a prophecy, is momentous in itself. But there's even more gravity added in the way that he delivers this prophecy. He doesn't just speak it. He performs what we would call a a prophetic sign act. Um, That's the word Bible scholars like to use. It's a prophetic picture, um, not just words. And you see these in the Old Testament prophets uh, from time to time. For example, when Ezekiel is told to dig through the city wall of Jerusalem to symbolize the people going into, into, into captivity... So what Agabus does here is very weighty, it's very solemn, as he binds his own hands and feet with Paul's own belt. And he says, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. It's, it's like a climactic version of what everyone else has been saying all along, but now it is being dramatically acted out 
before Paul's eyes. I think it's interesting in verse 12 that Luke uh, groups himself, not with Paul, but with the rest of the church. Tried to convince Paul to turn back. Usually the we passages, the we usually means Paul and I and his other traveling companions, but not here. Here Paul is really standing alone. Not even Luke is on his side. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Um, And perhaps by this time, you and I might be starting to think, maybe they're right. Is Paul just being stubborn? If you were him, what would you do under these same circumstances? Now, as we evaluate that, I think it's really critical to recall a moment in the life of Jesus resembles this one in some significant ways. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Uh, We've talked about that already, right? How Paul's journey to Jerusalem parallels Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. Um, And Jesus tells the disciples not only he's going to suffer, he's going to, he's going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Um, that's Jesus' mission, right? But Peter had a hard time understanding that, right? Peter took him aside, Matthew says, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what you're seeing here is the church is doing something very similar with Paul, as Peter tried to do with Jesus. They're trying to tell him, no, no, Paul, this shall never happen to you. There's no way that that can be right. Just just don't go. You don't have to go through this. But remember what Jesus told Peter. He told him, you're being a hindrance to me. Why is that? It's because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's immediately after that that Jesus turns to all of his disciples and says, What I told you earlier, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's right there in the context where he's just explained his own mission to go to Jerusalem to suffer. And he's calling his disciples and all other Christians who will come after them to that same mindset. It's as though he's telling them, listen, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. So Paul's answer to Luke and Agabus and the church in Caesarea then, we should read with that scene from Jesus' life in the back of our minds when Paul then answers, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart as if it wasn't hard enough already for Paul to to follow through on this mission knowing what lay ahead of him. They're actually making it worse, adding to the obstacles, making it harder for him, more painful to follow this cross-shaped path to Jerusalem. For I am ready, he says, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, he's saying I get it. I hear you. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. I know, but that doesn't mean I'm not supposed to go, and you're just making it harder by trying to convince me to turn aside from this path the Lord has given me. I think we get some good insights into Paul's attitude here from some of his letters Uh, For instance, in Philippians, when he's writing from his Roman imprisonment, uh, where he says, My goal 
is that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering in union with Christ is not a detour of the Christian in the Christian life. It is of the essence of the Christian life for Paul. In 2 Timothy, he tells, Timothy, he tells uh, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he also tells him, listen, Timothy, your job as a pastor is not to be comfortable and secure and to take life easy. It is to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. See, when he gave those instructions to Timothy, it was not just words. He was writing to Timothy, he was writing to the Philippians about things that they had actually seen lived out in his own choices, in his own um, personal life. So verse 14 then gives us the conclusion, gives us the way that Luke and the, and the Caesarea church respond at last after they hear that answer from Paul. And they realize, well, we see now he's not going to change his mind. He knows very clearly what's about to happen, and he's, he's just going anyway. I think we understand now. And since he would not be persuaded, it says, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I'm sure many of you can hear there another echo from the Gospels. Thinking of the Garden of Gethsemane night before the crucifixion. And there, of course, it's Jesus who is struggling inwardly with staying on the path to the cross, his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down to the crown, ground in agony. And he prays there, Father, if, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here in Acts, it's Interesting that it's not Paul, the sufferer, who's praying that prayer. It's the church. Isn't that interesting to see how things have flipped a little bit? They're the ones who are being called also to suffer by letting go of Paul, this beloved leader, pastor, apostle, that they depend on so much. They, when they don't want him to go, they're being called to let go of him. And yet, just as Paul is being called to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus laid down his life to complete his mission, they too are being called to follow Jesus in their own way, in their own calling, as they are to lay down their wishes, their desires, their earnest yearning to keep Paul safe, to keep Paul with them. They're being called to that same submission of their wills to God as well. Let the will of the Lord be done, not ours. Now, as we think, what are we to make of this? How does this apply to us? Obviously, there are a lot of differences um, between Paul's situation, which is completely unique, and the uh, situation of with um, these direct and explicit prophecies through the Holy Spirit um, and the way that Revelation is coming to the church. But the Christian life has not changed in its essence from the time of Paul to our own. And here's what I'd like you to consider here, that in the word of God, we have been given a mission that all of us share. And we have all been warned ahead of time, very clearly, uh, no surprises, that to carry out that mission means 
suffering and opposition and loss. And what you and I need to learn here is that encountering suffering and sacrifice and opposition and loss does not mean that we're doing something wrong. If anything, our Christian lives probably deserve the most scrutiny, the most questions should be raised when we're experiencing ease and comfort and prosperity. We should be asking ourselves, are we carrying out the mission that Christ has given to us? Are we following that cross-shaped path of suffering that leads to glory? Or are we exerting ourselves very carefully to keep to the path of least resistance? And we should give thanks to God that the path of least resistance was not the one that Jesus took. The path of least resistance was the one that didn't lead to the cross. Um, But of course... I mean, it's also the one that did not lead to your redemption, to the forgiveness of your sins. If Jesus had taken the path of least resistance, then think of where you and I would be, lost for all of eternity. But he didn't, of course, because God the Father had set before him, what? Blood. Toil and tears and sweat. That was the Lord Jesus' path, and it's the path that he kept to all the way to the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could become part of his family through his crucifixion for our sakes. And that, brothers and sisters, is the Jesus who has called us to take up our crosses daily and follow him, not expecting an easy path, but ready for hard things ready to endure, ready to be opposed, ready to make sacrifices. And ready, by the way, as we see in this passage, for those that we love to do the same. And that can actually sometimes be the hardest part, like you see here with the church in Acts. Um, Just this past week, I was in an OPC uh, denominational uh, foreign missions meeting where they were stressing the really uh, getting to be kind of desperate need that we have for new missionaries on some very key foreign mission fields. One of the speakers mentioned how, you know, we're we're very ready to pray that God would send other people's children to the foreign mission field. But what about our own children? Is that a prayer we're willing to pray? Is that is part of the reason for this uh, sort of missionary labor shortage they're talking about is at least part of it a reluctance on our part to relinquish the people that we love and to danger and hardship for the sake of Christ. Not so much unlike what this church, these uh, various many churches in Acts are being called to do. Of course, this, this church, resurrection, is a testimony to what it is like to let go of someone that you love for the sake of the gospel, the way you sent your first pastor to a foreign mission field. And you had to say those very hard words, let the will of the Lord be done. Not all of you remember that, but many of you do. I want to ask all of us this morning, though, in this moment, in this part of this church's life, in our own families, in Christian lives individually, how is the Lord calling us today? to adopt that same attitude, that same open-handed, simple spirit of submission to the providence of God, whatever it is that he may ask of us. May the Lord then teach us to pray with sincerity from our hearts, uh, 
what we're going to be singing together in just a moment. Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God. Though dark my road, he holds me, that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we feel the sorrow and the hearts very torn in this passage and in these very um, difficult interactions between Paul and the church as he made his way towards his arrest in Jerusalem. Lord, we thank you that you have laid all this out for us so clearly, not only in the life of Jesus, but also in the life of his servants um, in Acts. And Lord, we pray that you would um, help us. Lord, Lord, forgive us for the times when we have sought just to keep to the path of least resistance. And Lord, we ask that you would um, teach us to be faithful, to hold everything you've given to us with an open hand, and every one, so that we might live for the honor and the glory of Christ and carry out fearlessly and relentlessly the mission that he has given to us, knowing that for the present it may involve those blood and toil and tears and sweat, but in the end, a victory, however long and hard the road may be. We thank you that he is with us on that road. He has not left us alone. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is with us even now as we consider these things. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.